This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey there, what's happening? Welcome back to the fourth and final installment of my podcast mini-series all about the early days of the internet. And today we're looking at how Netflix changed the way we consume content from how the whole startup began to the growth of Netflix, how they also used the model of 1980s records and albums to sort of put their whole platform in place. And then we'll look at just the whole idea of how the movie industry has changed because of Netflix and what that means for, you know, movie theaters now and where we go to consume all this content and staying home. So we'll cover all that good stuff. Before we start, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. I should be there. Also, if you are a part of Patreon.com, I just put up a new movie review there where I'm looking at the infamous Howard the Duck. So if you're on Patreon, check your feed there. If you want to learn more about Patreon, it's a way to support uh, independent shows like this. Stick around to the end and I'll just go over that all. Okay, let's get into it. So one of the founding stories on Netflix is that the whole thing came about when its CEO, his name was Reed Hastings, and he one day got a late fee from Blockbuster Video for a copy of Apollo 13, and it was a $40 late fee, and he was just livid, and that is what put in motion the basis for founding a DVD rental company that would not treat its customers so harshly. It would not have late fees. It would be all about like convenience and the home delivery system and all that. Unfortunately, this is more of a PR friendly story and didn't actually ever really happen. Netflix was the brainchild of a man named Mark Randolph. And he had been an employee of one of Reed Hastings' previous companies called Pure Atria. So then when Pure Atria was sold, and then both Hastings and Randolph were between like their next job, Hastings agreed to fund Randolph's brainstorm. And he was the one who had the idea about sort of direct-to-home uh, DVD service and movies. And the the idea at the time is this is, you know, when the internet's really coming into its own, and this is when Amazon is really starting to take off. And, you know, you may forget that Amazon was purely a bookstore at, at the start, and they want to be the, to be the go-to place for books. That obviously worked, and now they're the go-to place for everything. So instead of being the biggest 
bookstore on earth, Randolph had this idea about being the biggest video rental store. If Amazon and Jeff Bezos at the time was able to do this with physical books and have this thing grow so rapidly, wouldn't it be easier with these smaller, super thin DVDs? So that's all they were doing, copying the model that Amazon had put in place. So they launched officially on April 14th, 1998. And this is interesting because Netflix originally sort of benefit benefited from this. You know, it was a it was a media shift time. If if we hadn't gone from VHS to DVD, Netflix never would have happened. It, it could have easily missed the boat. Or if they had the idea a few years too early, there's no way they would have been able to put it into place because not everyone had DVDs uh, for a while, and this wouldn't have worked with VHS. So when they first launched, they had a library of just over like 500 titles, but these were nearly, again, this is 1998, 5% maybe of households owned a DVD player. So there wasn't that many movies to, to find right off the bat. And then, you know, the percentage would grow. It doubled by 2000, then it doubled again to 37% of houses having a DVD player by 2002. Then it climbed another uh, up to 65% by 2004. So if, again, depending on how old you are, if you remember maybe your first DVD player, you probably remember it coming with coupons for re- for free Netflix rentals right in the box. Sometimes they would have that like branded on the outside of the box that you would like, oh, you'd get some free Netflix stuff with this. And that was, you know, when you got this brand new DVD player, what were you going to do with it? Remember how anytime a new technology comes out, the the videos, like the physical videos for it cost a fortune, whether it was the first uh, VHS tapes or the first beta tapes, the first Laserdisc, the first DVDs, the first Blu-rays, the first 4K. They're all so expensive right off the bat. It takes a while for the market to get saturated. So all these things start to come down. So if you bought a DVD player, it's like awesome, but... There wasn't that many movies to watch on it. And also they were super expensive. I mean, this is a whole massive top. I mean, there's podcasts devoted just to this sort of thing, but Netflix benefited from being the only game in town for a while. So, and this goes back to those days, Blockbuster, if you remember like Hollywood video, they were really reluctant to embrace the new format. They weren't really even sure if DVDs at first were going to be a thing. This like actually happened with these big rental places because the last big technology before DVD was Laserdisc. And I've done a whole show on Laserdisc um, one in, in the archives if you want to go back and check that out. And they, again, anytime these like high-end quality audio tech, whatever come out, they only really appeal to a small audience. You know, people are really into that sort of thing. Um, I guess I'd be one myself. Like as soon as Blu-ray came out, I was all over it just because you're getting the best quality version of those movies at the time. Same thing going into 4K and Ultra HD. So when they started stocking the stores with Laserdisc, it cost them a fortune. And then no one is renting these things because they had to, you know, very, I don't know if you knew anyone who owned a Laserdisc player. I didn't know anyone. So you'd have to rent these things at the video store. Then the movies, they, they could cost like hundreds of dollars. This isn't something you could do that often. So in the summer of uh, the year 2000, Netflix even offered to sell itself to Blockbuster 
for about $50 million with the express idea that Netflix would become the DVD channel for Blockbuster. Blockbuster would focus just on their VHS. Netflix would take care of the DVD side. So this is one of, this is like the fact of the whole podcast that Blockbuster could have owned Netflix. They could have taken the whole thing. Um, and then as Netflix, you know, this is still in the days where they're physically distributing DVDs, uh, you know, as they get into the streaming world, Blockbuster, you know, after they realized the giant mistake they made, they tried to get in the streaming service too, but it was obviously too little too late. It's just, it's incredible to think Blockbuster didn't think DVDs were going to catch on. So that's the basic origin story of Netflix. But like, let's look at how it changed our culture and the way we consume content. And it's, it's almost hard to picture life before Netflix. It's hard to even imagine how we existed without streaming services. Like thinking about having to wait for things to come on TV is mind boggling. Now it's instantly accessible and then you could watch it as many times as possible. If you think of a big moment happen on TV and, you know, in the 70s, well, 60s, 70s, early 80s, it happened once. That was it. If you missed it, you missed it. There was no recording until, you know, VCRs became more commonplace, but that even took a while to get going. If you missed a big moment, you were completely left out the next day. They didn't rerun it. You couldn't view it on demand. You couldn't go on YouTube to check it out. You were screwed. And it's not just that these streaming services and specifically Netflix changed the way we consume content. They changed the whole dynamic of what entertainment consumption would be. Like I said, we went from waiting a week for a brand new show to binging them all at once. So how did the streaming service create this new mode of consumption? And then part of it has to do with the music industry and back to the glory days of the 80s and 90s and physical albums. So there's a man named Ted Sarandos. He's one of the co-CEOs and considered the chief content officer for Netflix and been listening to some of his interviews and discussions on the early days of the platform. And, you know, he talks about it starting out as a DVD subscription service. It was done by, by mail. Again, depending on your age, this might be brand new to you or you remember getting Netflix in the mail. I sure do. I had no idea this service still exists and there are a few million people who continue to get their movies in the post. That's That blew my mind looking into this. So again, as they got into the full subscription service, this is around 1999, it was interesting how this came about as well as we kind of go back to the origin story a little bit because it was Napster that drew their attention to new possibilities as well, too. The online file sharing service was paving the way for how media could be consumed. So could videos be rented and then streamed online, too? It, was that even a possibility? You know, we're starting off here talking about physical copies going in the mail. You know, you'd set up your queue and everything like that online. You'd return them. They were simple, but... Was this a far-fetched idea that you could maybe stream something on your computer the same way you are now able to download an MP3? It was ultimately, again, it comes back to the timing and everything to do with this series and the internet and all these big websites like, you know, when I talk in the first episode, I talk about Netscape. In the second episode, it was about America Online and... Uh, then the third one was about Google. All of these things 
were just at the exact perfect time. If it had been a year later, a year earlier, even within six to eight months, it might not have happened. And the timing was never more paramount than it was with Netflix becoming a streaming content provider. So now we're in the early 2000s and broadband speeds were just not fast enough, but they're starting to get better. Netflix is still doing the mail postage service at this point. And again, still to this day, I just can't get over that fact. But now at this point, postage costs are starting to go up. If Netflix waited until the right moment, these two lines would cross and it would be a perfect cost-effective time to launch the service. They had figured out the streaming technology. They knew it could work. Again, borrowing from that Napster platform. But again, they had to wait till broadband could catch up. They had to wait this out and they did until 2007. They waited till that exact moment where postage was too high and broadband was getting good enough and decided this is the moment we're moving it online. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The streaming giant now has over 200, as of the day of recording this, over 200 million subscribers and is worth nearly 200 billion. And of course, their value has gone through the roof in the last year. They made more than Disney in 2020, which is pretty crazy. And again, if they hadn't timed it out perfectly, we'd probably not be having this podcast topic right now. So how did Netflix create this binge-style consumption? So... Looking more at these interviews with Ted Serenis, he mentions how at first Netflix just made all of their movies, like the physical movies they had, they just ported those over to the streaming service. That's all they could really think to do at the time. They also had some older TV shows that they had on DVD and they ported those over as well too. They weren't sure really what content to fill it up with. So then you know, they're putting it all online. And since the entire series of a show they were putting up already existed, it only made sense to have every episode available at the same time. So this was interesting because unless you own the DVD box set of a TV show, you were only able to view episodes when they first aired, or you would have to wait to catch them in reruns, but you would never know what episodes are going to be broadcast. With Netflix, you could now watch as many episodes as you wanted in a day. Despite the full availability of these different TV shows, the term binging wasn't a thing yet. This would all change when Netflix started to create its own original programming, and it started with House of Cards. So Sarandos calls this a happy accident. They decided 
If they were going to create their own programming, they had to go full on with it. House of Cards received a $100 million budget, which was astounding for a non-network TV show, even for a network TV show. The entire series was filmed, but how are they going to release the episodes? Since past seasons of other TV shows were already available, they believed they couldn't release just one episode a week. House of Cards was the first big deal for Netflix, a big sign deal, but a show called Lilyhammer was the first original programming they release. Sarandos was talking to the producer of Lilyhammer, who was in Norway, to produce an album for a band. The show was ready, and Sarandos told him they were going to release the show all at once. The producer was taken aback since they had just spent nine months of their lives on something that was going to be dumped out all at the same time. Sarandos realized that releasing a series like an album was the way to go. An album doesn't release one song a week until the album is complete. You get it all at once. And he was thinking back to the days of the 80s and the early 90s where you would just, you know, still exist now, but to wait for the physical album. Today, it's more likely you're going to get the odd single and, you know, maybe an EP will come out and full albums are obviously still a thing. But you know, it would take years to wait for a big new release and people would be lined up outside record stores and all that stuff. So there's all that excitement that everything came out at once. Since that producer was involved with music, this concept resonated with him. Netflix original programming would be like releasing a music album, but with video. For the first time ever, we could now watch the entire series of a new show all at once. And it turned out people really liked this. Sarandos says how their early data revealed that people watch several episodes all at once. They also never would watch just one episode. But has this changed over the years? And is binging the best way to consume content? I'll be honest, I've come to highly dislike the idea of binging a new show, show all at once. I feel like we loved the binging concept at first because it satisfied our, you know, insatiable appetite to consume media. We didn't have to wait for the next episode and could watch it on our own time. Kind of the dream of when you're a kid and you didn't want to wait all week for the next episode of A-Team. You wish you could watch it right now. Now we could do that. But I think that's starting to change. Waiting more than a year for a new season of a show only to watch it in eight hours straight seems pretty absurd. I much prefer to space the new episodes out over the course of weeks or even a month. The problem is then you have to avoid every form of human contact and communication. I had the end of the second season of House of Cards ruined because I forgot to stay off Twitter the day it was released. The other problem with binging and to me, this is the culturally significant part, is it doesn't create a collective viewing experience. One of the big draws of TV is the community aspect to it. We're all watching this thing at the same time and experiencing it together after you can freely discuss it with friends and anticipate the next episode. And I love how Disney Plus has done this with shows, obviously, like The Mandalorian and WandaVision and Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Uh, I don't know if you're a fan, but on Prime Video, there's the Grand Tour, which was, you know, replaced Top Gear and everything that they released weekly episodes. I love that. I liked waiting. There's no jumping ahead. You have to, I don't know, the anticipation is built. And I like how there's excitement that grows for a new episode and no one can spoil it by jumping ahead too quickly. And I'm enjoying this return to a tr traditional viewing experience, you know, the first season of Stranger Things, I consumed probably in one sitting, and that was cool, but I much preferred 
the buildup and excitement to say weekly episodes of Breaking Bad or Mad Men when it was on or, you know, enter your favorite network cable show. And I think we're getting back to that traditional way because when a season drops all, say, say like Stranger Things season three, it drops all at the same time. Everyone is, you know, consuming it that weekend. And there, there's no sort of, again, collective viewing experience. No one is sharing that. It, it's almost like it doesn't exist because people are watching it on their own time. But say with like WandaVision, uh, everyone is waiting for Friday to come around and then everyone's openly discussing and waiting what's going to happen in the next week. So I feel it's like that, you know, kind of return to network TV, even though it's in the streaming platform. So what does all this mean for the future of entertainment and movies and everything? Like if you look now, how, how much has had to change in 2020 going into 2021 with movie releases and them being um, released on the streaming platform the same day, something like we could only kind of dream of years and years ago saying like, you know, when a movie came out, you'd have to wait, I don't know, six, eight months until it came on. uh, There was a video release of it. And always that idea of like, imagine you could get the movie like the next week or the day of or something like that. And that's happened with like HBO Max, you know, releasing everything in theaters the same day as they do streaming. And then Disney Plus is doing it with big releases as well because they're kind of forced into it um, with the pandemic. And now I think this was going to happen anyway. I think this is kind of the future of movies, but I think everything in 2020 has sort of fast forward everything about five years. And this is where the industry was going anyway, because you know, I like the idea that a brand new release I can watch at home and notably because most people's home theater setups are pretty amazing. I mean, a 50 inch TV now goes for nothing and you can get like a pretty decent sound bar. And now people have home projection theaters and full surround sound speaker systems that aren't crazy expensive. And, you know, you can be at home, start this movie whenever you want Uh, You can pause it and go to the bathroom compared to going out to the theater, driving, finding parking, not to mention, you know, I don't know what the average ticket prices are going, but if you're watching a big movie in like IMAX and then getting something to eat there, like you're looking at a $50 night easily compared to the comfort of your own home. Like me personally, I'll always still go to movies, but now when I think back in the last few years, the only movies I would go to are big releases, whether whether it was a new Marvel movie or I would go see something, you know, if it's like one of the new Jurassic Worlds or, you know, just something that's like made for the big screen. But if you think like your average comedy or drama, there's not as much reason to go to the theater when you have a home theater set up at home and it's a much more comfortable, better environment. So I think this was an inevitable change that was coming and it's just been accelerated due to everything that's gone on in the world. So it'll be interesting to see how movies will sort of um, come out in the wash in the next few years. Again, I think when it's a giant release, how many people are going to watch it at home compared to how many are you going to be watching the theater that day? Or are you going to watch it at home and be like, well, we actually have to see this on the big screen now. So I don't know if uh, 
box office revenues are going to take a massive hit or if they're going to make up for it in the fact that they'll charge higher home price to see it the same day. Where some of these movies, it's like 30, 34 bucks. So I sell this as what looks like is the natural trajectory and what is happening. But it's interesting to see, though, what Netflix will do as all this is going on, because they're starting to set the standard for how the entertainment industry goes. So they haven't really made a move yet. And it's going to be interesting to see if they go into like weekly release schedules with new shows and new seasons. They haven't done that yet. Or if are they going to start doing other releases in theaters the same day? They've been doing that a little, but they've been staggering it. They haven't made a definitive um, stand on that compared to, say, you know, Disney Plus or HBO Max or, you know, Prime Video's done with a few shows too. But then if you start looking at it from a business aspect, if revenues start to go down, how are they going to recover all this stuff? It seems to make sense, though, financially to release a show episode by episode on a streaming service as that could lead to longer subscription times. I've gone for long periods without Netflix only to buy it for a month just to watch a new series and then cancel it right after. Say with Disney+, Plus, I wasn't going to miss WandaVision or Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So that way, they've got at least three months out of me for the length of that series compared to just one if they had released, say, WandaVision all at once. So that's an interesting dynamic. I think that this binging concept is always going to exist as people want to have control over how they consume their media. It's just whether the big blockbuster releases are going to continue to be immediately available, which I don't know if there's any stopping it at this point. But, you know, that return into a collective viewing experience seems to be bringing more eyes and attention to a show. You know, just looking back again at this whole thing, when, you know, new WandaVision episodes are released each week, they were the number one trending topic on Twitter every single week. And I think people just wanted to feel excited about something like they used to when you were growing up. Again, this all comes down to Netflix as the industry standard, so we'll have to watch them to see their approach to what content consumption uh, really is, if it changes or or stays the same or whatever. So I'll wrap it up there. That's the end of this series. Hope you enjoyed this little detour as we look back on the you know, probably most important advancement in our lifetime with the internet. And uh, thanks for listening. And I just, you know, you can shut this off now if you're done, but I'll just touch on Patreon, which I mentioned earlier. So as, you know, podcast itself continue to grow rapidly, it's being taken over by giant, you know, podcast networks and celebrities and companies and everything like that. This makes it harder for independently produced shows like mine to sort of stand out in all of this. But Patreon.com is a way to support these smaller shows, but then get some free audio bonuses while doing so. So, uh, for example, I mentioned the Everything 80s Movie Club where I just reviewed Howard the Duck. That's the Boba Fett level and above on my Patreon. So, you know, I review all the good and the bad and the ugly of 1980s movies, but then also on Patreon at all the different levels, you know, I post, I do a thing every Saturday where I really Saturday morning cartoons where I pick like a classic uh, cartoon episode and put that up. So that's available to everyone at, even at the lowest level you support, I'll, I'll put up, you know, odd commercials from the eighties that I love pictures, all sorts of stuff. So if you want to see more, just go to patreon.com slash eighties, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash eight zero s or wherever you're listening there should be a link to take you there 
too. But I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this show. As mentioned, there are so many shows out there now. So the fact you listen to this one means a lot. But that's it for me. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.